Podcast brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the podcast. We have with us today Dr. Bob Waldinger who is very well known across the country, has been for many years for the Harvard Good Life Study, but more recently for a book that he's just written called The Good Life. And we're here at a conference at Arizona State University of the Coalition for Life Transformative Education. Bob was one of the keynote speakers, and I think that listeners will understand why a group of people who are so interested in transformative education and well-being asked Dr. Waldener to come and speak to the group here. So Bob, thank you so much for being with us. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the first questions I'd like to ask you, which you probably get asked many, many times, but for our listeners who may not have read your book or know of your work, give us some of the highlights of the study and of what the key learnings are in the book. So I'm the fourth director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. As far as we know, it's the longest study of adult life that's ever been done, that it follows the same people from the time they were teenagers all the way into old age. We're in our 85th year, and we've reached out to the children as well, the second generation. So we've all in all followed over 2,000 people over many, many decades. And what it is, is a study of human thriving, of well-being. And it's two groups, started with two groups of men, one very privileged undergraduate students from Harvard College, and one very underprivileged group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods and most troubled families. And so the two contrasting groups are the groups of people who started the study. We brought in their wives. We brought in their children, more than half of whom are women. And so now we have this wonderful treasure trove of information on 724 families across 85 years. The study has found so many things. There have been hundreds of papers and scores of books, but two big takeaways. One is no surprise at all. It's that if you take care of your health, it really matters for how long you live and how you feel during your life. Preventive health care, exercise, diet, not abusing alcohol or drugs, not smoking, all of that really matters. The finding that we didn't expect and that at first we didn't believe was the people who stayed the healthiest and lived the longest were the people who had the best connections with other people that actually our relational lives make a huge difference in not just how happy we are, but how healthy we are and how long we live. And it's not just our study that has found this, but now many other studies. So it's now a fairly well-established finding that this is a powerful connection between relationships and health. So Bob, I wanna really focus on relationships for our audience. We work, obviously, with young adults and with college students, and I think it's interesting that you started with college students back when they were 19 in 1938. We hear so much about loneliness, 
and the importance of having relationships generally. Now you're bringing this incredible data to us. So I want to turn the conversation a little more focused towards college students and towards young people. What is the big message here, do you think, around relationships at a time when so many of them have been stunted, of course, because of COVID, are curated due to uh, social media. So if you're speaking to folks who work with young people or to young people themselves, what might you suggest to them in terms of what your data have shown around the importance of relationships? Well, what we know, not just from our study, but from a lot of studies now, is that people aged 16 to 24 are the loneliest group of people, at least in the United States and perhaps around the world that these young adults, adolescents moving into young adulthood, are the most isolated, disconnected group. And that's often a surprise to older people who look at young people and think of them as so active and so involved and connected with each other. And of course, many young people are, but there's a huge subset of young people who are disconnected. This is not just a function of the COVID pandemic. It, it was in the works, it was happening long before COVID hit. And then COVID accelerated the upsurge in depression, anxiety, in a sense of isolation. If you're providing some advice based on your data, what might you tell that 19-year-old or 20-year-old who's in college now about the importance of relationships. And I want to ask you about relationships that are not what a 19-year-old and 20-year-old will typically think, like my roommate, my best friend, you know, human relationships. What do, should they be thinking about as they start their adult lives in terms of what you're showing us to be the value of relationships? What we know is that we get all kinds of different things from relationships. And we don't get the same things from any relationship, right? They're all slightly different, but you know, some relationships are fun and some relationships are people we confide in. And some relationships are the people who help us move furniture when we need that help, you know, or drive us to a doctor's appointment. Many relationships can serve more than one function, but almost no relationship is going to provide everything. And what that means is that we need, we need to look to people to meet all kinds of different needs and to provide those needs. So the best relationships, of course, are relationships that are reciprocal. And one of the things that feels bad about relationships is when they're not reciprocal, when it feels like I'm always the one who calls up my friend or I'm always the one helping out and I don't get that in return. And so mutuality is really important. And one of the things, you know, I would ask people to think about is how mutual are your relationships? And if they're not, can you work on that? Or can you find some people who are with whom it's more mutual? Similarly, you know, what we learn is that conflict is inevitable in relationships. That does not mean you want to get rid of that relationship in your life at all. In fact, most relationships are valuable enough. We have enough invested that it's worth trying to work out conflicts so that the work is really not to find a conflict-free friend, but to find a friend with whom you can talk about disagreements and both people come out feeling okay, like nobody won and nobody lost, and that if anything, you two are 
stronger together because you've worked out differences. Friendships and romantic relationships, correct? I mean, romantic relationships, for sure. There is no romantic relationship without conflict. And so when I look at people who are about to get married, sometimes I will evaluate couples who come for therapy. And the real question is not, are they each other's soulmate? But really, how do they work out conflicts? That if they can work out conflicts, they have a good future together. If they can't find any way to talk about disagreements and come out the other side feeling okay, then they're in trouble. And either they have to develop skills to resolve conflict, or they should find another person with whom it's not so difficult. I want to ask you about your work around lifespan, because I think this is really interesting. And again, from the perspective of a young person. So you talk about how your feelings, your level of happiness, all of that changes over your lifespan. But again, when you're going off to college or you're graduating from college, you don't always think about that, do you? And even now, you know, I'm an old guy, but I think, well, why doesn't everybody think just like me? You know, and I have to remember from my own research and from looking around me that, well, no, people think very differently. So people of college age are going to have a certain view of the world, a certain view of culture, of politics, of the future that older people don't have, that younger people don't have. And that's actually a good thing, that we wouldn't want a world that was filled with everybody who had the same perspective on life or even one generation dominating everything. Actually, the baby boomers probably dominated a lot of culture for a lot of years and didn't always turn out so well. So I think that the thing we learn from following people over time is that things change in their importance. So if you think about, let's say you're 20 years old now, think about when you were half that age, when you were 10 years old, what was important to you then? Well, it's probably not all the same stuff that's important to you now. And when you're 30, it's going to shift again. And when you're 40, and that's okay, that's normal, it's to be expected. But it, it means that to some extent, we all have to hold our own perspectives a little more lightly and realize that it's not the only way to look at life. I think that's a really interesting view for young people who, as you said, are reporting the highest levels of loneliness. And we know from our own data, extremely high rates of stress, financial stress and anxiety. And there's a hopeful message here that you can become more peaceful and, and happier over time. And again, focusing on what it matters most. And as your book suggests, it's relationships way over money which was an interesting finding from your survey. I want to talk a little bit about what we've been talking about these past two days at ASU and how some of your work might help with that. Dr. Waldinger came as keynote here. The conference is really about what new strategies in higher ed policy, teaching, learning, well-being strategies could be infused into pedagogy, into the way that, that we experience college. And we just sat through a, a tremendous workshop with Dr. Waldinger where he actually teaches these kinds of strategies that ultimately will make you more peaceful and happier and allow you to go through life in a more positive way. I know this is putting you on the spot a bit, but first question is, could you see this kind of training being utilized on college campuses? And why do you think it might be really important considering all you've learned? So a little bit about your reaction to, to what you've seen here and how you think maybe we could work together. Well, my sense is that, you know, we know that the college years are a time where we 
do a lot of figuring out of who we are. What kind of person am I? Who do I want to align with? What do I value the most? And therefore, how do I want to spend my time on this earth? Which is pretty limited, even, even though it doesn't, may not seem that way when you're in college, that life is really short. We can teach that. We can ask ourselves to think about, well, what do I value the most? And if that's what I value the most, am I actually spending my time promoting those values, doing things that align with those values, or am I doing things that don't align with those values at all? And so like in my own life, I've ended up taking jobs that I don't really care about and don't really like, and that actually promote things I don't believe in. And it's been really important for me to turn back to my own values and say, okay, as soon as I can, I'm going to make a change because this is not energizing for me. It's not making me feel like my time is being well spent. And I think that's the kind of thing that can start when we go to college or university, that it's the kind of thing you can do from day one, and it can help you with with course choices. It can help you choose a major. It can help you think about summer internships. It can help you think about where you want to go after college. That if you, if you can settle on some core things that you care deeply about, that can do a lot to become your North Star toward which you can point your decision. One of the things I noticed in listening to your work, and you ask people about their core values in, in, in your workshop, you know, I'm not sure that we ask young people enough what their values are. And you know, the thing is, they have them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's an assumption that, that either they don't or they don't think about it or they prioritize other things. But even asking young people who go to college, what do you, what kind of values do you have? How, how is it that you're proud of yourself? Yes. And we do have values, but often we don't quite know what they are until someone asks us to clarify them. I'll give you an example. We, we've started bringing my two sons who are in their 30s into our process of deciding where are we going to give our money each year, our philanthropy. And so, you know, there are a host of good causes, but then you have to decide, okay, we can't give to everything. What are we going to give to? And it turned out that my sons value some things differently than I value. Like I wanted to help with poverty and disease. They wanted to work on climate change. Really, all of them really important, but you can't do everything. So what, and there, that's just a way of saying that even clarifying values is something we don't always do until someone asks us, until some decision point makes us clarify. And that's a really good thing. So back to sort of how we can infuse this into what we're doing in the education space. And I know a lot of this is much more prominent in K through 12. You talked about SEL, socio-emotional learning. And I'm fascinated by that because I have seen the data and I know it really can move the needle on a, a lot of things, not just climate within the classroom, but also personal development. I'd love for that concept to be further explored in the higher ed space. And I haven't seen a lot of it. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, my friends who work a lot in socio-emotional learning have said that when teachers are given cu curricula to teach their children in their classrooms and they teach the kids about feelings and having an argument with a friend, all of those social skills and emotional skills that we want to inculcate in our children, that the teachers 
come back and say, we need this for us. And that really what we know is that everybody needs this. You need it at a different level if you're in college or if you're a teacher in the middle of your career, but you need it. All of us need it. And, and actually, you know, I mean, I practice Zen and a lot of Zen meditation is learning those emotion skills. It's le- is watching all the feelings and thoughts that come up and drive you crazy and then learning to work with them. And so it's another form of socio-emotional learning. It just happens on a meditation cushion. So Bob, this is the last question. And particularly for our young listeners, you've just written this terrific book. I have a TED Talk that's the, uh, the ninth most, most popular TED Talk in history. People are so hungry for this information, and, and, and so are our young people. Without putting you on the spot, which I clearly am doing, words of wisdom, having actually studied what matters most in life? I would say, you know, invest in connections with other people. It has the biggest payoff, both in terms of making us happier because it's more fun to be connected, and relationships help us get through the hard times, and the hard times are always coming along when we least expect them. So it's a really good investment of time and energy. Don't neglect it. Don't assume that your relationships will just take care of themselves if they're good and that you don't really have to be active in that. Be active. Keep your friendships going. Keep reaching out. Keep doing things with friends in real life. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Bob Waldinger. It was such a pleasure to have you here at the at the Quadcast and also at the conference. <laughs> This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.